it's only really in the last year that I sort of legitimately feel like an entrepreneur, I would say. Mm. Um, I've, you know, it's taken me that long to sort of shed my corporate baggage, get my ego in check, um, learn how startup is different, learn a different skill set, which, which is absolutely the case. So, you know, I think for anyone coming out of corporate, you're really going to have to go on that path. Um, and it's, it's not always a particularly pleasant one, but mm-hmm. it's, it is quite a rewarding one. David Lester is the co-founder of Olipop, a deliciously disruptive alternative to soda. In just 12 months, the brand is already one of the most successful startups in the beverage category. But it's easy to misinterpret Olipop's success. The brand is actually David's second attempt at disrupting soda. In this conversation, the first of two episodes, David shares what worked from his first startup, what didn't, and the lessons that he and his co-founder applied to Olipop. Welcome to the second season of Brand New Blueprint, a podcast by Smoketown. I'm your host, Ryan Pintado-Vertner. This podcast is all about finding new ways to build brands that can change the world. We hear directly from founders and CEOs, and we don't wait until they're already successful and worth zillions of dollars. We hear from them right now while the paint on the blueprint is still wet. And who is Smoketown? Smoketown is a boutique consultancy that improves the growth potential of emerging brands with better marketing strategy, outsourced marketing staffing, and best-in-class consumer research. In other words, we're nerds about this stuff. Here we go. David, welcome to Brand New Blueprint. I'm really excited to talk with you. Olipop, I've got a huge crush on that brand, as you'll hear a whole lot more later. So thanks for taking the time. No worries at all. Pleasure to speak to you. So let's start out with you just introducing Olipop for those who might not be familiar with the brand. So Olipop um, is... Uh, a range of sparkling digestive tonics. Um, our goal really with it has been to um, provide high quality health benefits for digestive health in a format that's accessible for a broad range of people. So, you know, we picked a soda format, um, you know, which is soda flavors, um, packaging, positioning, um, but with low sugar and, and eight plant-based ingredients to support digestive health. One of the things that, like, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Olipop, but first I actually want to go backwards because this is your second startup. You started your career, as I understand it, at Diageo, and then from there you went into a startup. And I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit more about that first startup and what it, what, like, what was the journey that led you from your, your career right before that, uh, in, into the first startup that you had before Olipop? Yeah, so I spent about a decade at Diageo. Um, I went in on their, their graduate program, started in London, uh, ended up in Sydney, and then ultimately Sao Paulo. And, you know, over a decade, I had a great time there, learned a lot. It was an awesome company to work for. But, um, you know, I just kind of like felt that I had hit a bit of a ceiling. I was getting grumpy with the pace of things and the and the red tape and um so i guess i kind of like dared myself to go and do something um entrepreneurial at that point i'd always kind of had an interest 
and um, I sort of jumped off and my wife and I moved to San Francisco and, um, you know, within a couple of months, actually, I'd met uh, my now co-founder and business partner, Ben. And, um, you know, Ben is super interesting character, very different from the sorts of people I'd worked with at Diageo. Um, complete maverick and, um, you know, exactly what I was looking for at the time. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, while my wife was hoping I'd, I'd kind of stick in a sort of safer career path and, um, work in downtown San Francisco <laughs> with her instead, you know, I found myself working for free for a year, um, to help get this kind of burgeoning, uh, digestive health business off the ground. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of a real leap for me. It's, it's one of those things you look back on and, and you think if I, if I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, so that sort of bit of naivety and drive, um, to, you know, knowing what I didn't want to do was, was kind of useful to tip me over into it. And, um, yeah, Ben and I sort of had, had this previous venture over you, you know, we took a year to get it off the ground and, um, you know, develop the packaging, um, you know, funding for it. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a great version 1.0 and we learned a lot from it. Um, we learned that the concept was really resonating and, um, it was in a similar space around, you know, soda style drinks that were low in sugar and support digestive health, but with a focus on probiotics, good bacteria, um, rather than prebiotics, um, food for the good bacteria. Um, and you know, we, as inevitably happens, I think we made some missteps with our first venture and, you know, managed to get a modest exit out of it and, and took that cash and reinvested in, in version 2.0, which is Honeypop. So Obi was in a similar space. It was also targeting soda occasions. It was also better for you. In that case, it was a probiotic mm-hmm. and how did you arrive at that specific idea? Did, did that idea already kind of exist in Ben's mind when you met him or did you guys come up with that together? It did. Yeah. Yeah. Ben had that vision already. And, um, like a lot of great entrepreneurs, he, you know, dropped out of college to teach himself microbiology back in the day. He mm. wanted to focus on, on digestive health as the highest point of leverage for human health. And then wanted to make that accessible. And he just looked at the soda category and said, Hey, this is a big category. So what if I made it like a soda? It was sort of that simple. And, right. you know, obviously the, the tricky part then comes in the execution. Um, you know, how do you, how do you map a, a concept like that? Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was before things like Halo Top and another sort of healthy junk food sort of thing. And, um, people thought we were crazy doing it. They were like, why are you doing soda in the natural space? It doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, wow. You know, soda's dying. It's, it's, you know, you should do this as sparkling water or something. Um, but we felt very strongly that, um, you know, that's exactly what was interesting about it. It was super disruptive. Um, you know, we hedged our bets a little bit. We had a root beer flavor and, and then we had a, I think it was a lemon lime flavor that was, you know, sort of more, probably more targeted at the, uh, at the natural market. And, you know, the root beer was the one that w- was really the runaway success. You know, we, we saw that people wanted, you know, still have an interest in, in fast food. It's, you know, and, and um, soda and, and categories like this. It's, it's really a major part of American culture, if not global culture. And, um, you know, people just didn't want, 
the sugar or the calories or, you know, wanted some functionality in there. So, you know, if you could credibly do that while still delivering on the, you know, original brand proposition or the, the category proposition, um, you know, we felt you were, you were really onto a, onto something interesting. And, you know, we've seen from kind of beyond me and impossible and, um, you know, say things like Hated Top, these are brands that really understand the categories they're playing in, lean into, um, ice cream or, or burgers, um, but do it in a, in a way that's better for you and, and sort of meeting the modern consumer's needs. And, you know, and that's really what we try to do with Olipop as well. I'm trying to get a mental picture of, of that, that decision making moment when you guys got to San Francisco, you'd had a relatively comfortable, predictable career. Uh, you and I have a lot of, of career in common. I wasn't at Diageo. I was at Clorox, but similar length of time, similar predictable path. I probably share a lot of those frustrations that you articulated, but, but even with the frustrations, it was a, it's a, it's a clear straight line ahead, right? And then what mm-hmm. you jumped into, complete unknown. What, like, what was that decision making process like for you and your wife? What, what, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great point actually because you know being a an entrepreneurial spouse is a sort of is a thing in and of itself, and right. it requires a lot of understanding. Um, you know, so and it hasn't been without its bumps in the road for us over the years as well. You know, working from home is hard for people. They sort of like you know, you know, it's even subconsciously sort of not really thinking you're working sometime or, you know, you right. get asked to do things that you're like, hold on, this is my, you know, this is my <laughs> office I'm working or, um, you know, just people thinking you're crazy. Like, why are you still, why are you taking this much pain? Just kind of quit and go and get a, go and get a regular job. But, um, I think certainly for myself, you know, I've always liked challenge, um, and, um, you know, doing things the, the difficult or interesting way. I think that's, that's common for both Ben and I, we, you know, we, we really like, we get bored quickly. And so we want to do things that are interesting, that are meaningful. And, um, you know, we challenge each other on that path. So, you know, my wife, Kathy's always been extremely supportive of, of this stuff. And, um, she, luckily she has a, a great career herself. She's five years older than me and, you know, well-established in, in her career. And, and it put me in a fortunate position as well to, for us to make a decision as a, as a, as a couple and then as a family for me to kind of like take a bit more of a risky path, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, may or may not pay off in the long, in the long run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to think about how much times have changed because actually roughly where in, in, in time are we with Obi? So that was what year? 2000 and. I think it was like 12 or something. Yeah. So okay. sort of seven, eight years ago now. Yeah. So I think I've, I've been in the entrepreneurial space for about seven years. So approaching the same amount of time as I was in my corporate career for. And I, I'd say it's only really in the last year that I sort of legitimately feel like an entrepreneur, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, it's taken me that long to sort of shed my corporate baggage, get my ego in check, um, learn how startup is different, learn a different skill set, which, which is absolutely the case. So, you know, I think for anyone coming out of corporate, you're really going to have to go on that path. Um, and it's, it's not always a particularly pleasant one, but mm-hmm. it's, it is quite a rewarding one. 
Um, you know, if, if you can get to grips with that personal growth, um, you know, it's, it can be really empowering and I've ultimately found it very empowering, but equally, you know, some of the most challenging days, um, of my life, certainly my professional life, um, you know, as, as I went through that. Yeah. Looking back, the choice to disrupt soda seems so obvious now. What was mm. it that made people tell you that this seemed, that it seemed crazy? I mean, at the, at the time, you, know, you think back seven years ago, um, at the, like the kombucha category taking off, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kavita, um, there wasn't, I say, there wasn't like Halo Tops or, you know, mm-hmm. some of the, the plant based meat alternatives and things. So, you know, the, I think the natural products category at that time was still kind of very much natural products. You know, it was, um, acai berry flavored stuff and you know mm-hmm. things that were really designed to work well in whole foods and and you know even on on olipop as we were you know developing it it's got a deliberately sweet taste profile to it you know because it's designed for the soda occasion so as we went into stores like erewhon for example we were kind of intrigued to know how well the thing would do it wasn't really designed for a store like that mm-hmm. um but you know, interestingly, the strawberry vanilla, which candidly is, is a little sweet for my palate, um, but is our top seller, um, you know, outsells pretty much most of the drinks in that store. Um, so it's incredible to see that even, you know, the Uber health end of the, mm-hmm. of the LA market, um, people are still gravitating towards these kind of familiar taste profiles. And, you know, that, that was a piece of learning for us that we got even within the last year. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it starts to seem obvious now, but, um, you know, as we kind of set out on the journey, it, it really didn't. And, um, yeah, for a lot of people, they're seeing soda category as, as kind of dying. Um, you know, it's going backwards, which, you know, I guess to an extent it is, but, you know, it's still $40 billion out there and it's still, um, you know, massive occasion base. And, uh, from an innovation perspective, from my experience at Diageo as well, you know, one of the key things to, you know, evaluating your size of prize and, and, and looking at what your turn rate is going to be like is what's the occasion base you're going after. If consumers don't know when to use your product, if they don't know what they're substituting it for and you have to educate them on that, you know, you're in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like seven or so years ago, you guys have started this venture. This is your first time doing a startup at all. What was it that was hard in that transition from Diageo to, to startup? Because as I, as if I'm, if I'm remembering this right, you actually had an innovation job at Diageo for at least part of that time, right? So it's not like innovation was new to you. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, about half of my career was product innovation. I headed up, um, you know, our innovation efforts with emerging middle class consumers in, in Latin America, for example, is mm-hmm. like quite an interesting and challenging role. So, you know, all those skills are really useful. Um, on both ventures actually. And, you know, there's a lot of value that you can bring across from, um, you know, that, that corporate experience, but, you know, startup is completely different in terms of mindset in the speed at which you have to operate in the kind of growth mindset. Um, and, and candidly in the humility that's required as well. I mean, mm. you know, um, if you come from a big blue chip company, um, 
there's not a lot of tolerance for kind of like mistakes and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, there's maybe not a lot of humility as well. You know? yeah, so those are lessons that, you know, you get, you get taught pretty quick in startup. There's no hiding place. Um, you know, it's, uh, you're not kind of like managing people's expectations. It's just like you make a mistake. It's a mistake, you know, and you got to just kind of front up and learn from it. Um, so, you know, all that transition was hard. Um, I was transitioning to a new category. I'd come from, you know, alcohol and spirits and, and was coming into a fast paced, um, you know, uh, um, soft drinks markets, you know, probably the most competitive space within CPG, um, and one of the most competitive markets in the world in the U S which I'd not, not worked in before. So, you know, all that stuff is kind of challenging and new. And I think, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, probably not that surprising that it's venture two or three is the one that really pops because, um, you know, it's, I think almost first time around is just too much to learn. You know, um, some people do it and, and fair play to them. And, you know, you do need a bit of luck on that, that front as well. But, um, you know, if you've got the fortitude to go back and retrace your steps and, and, and understand where you, where you missed that, um, you know, I think it gives you a much better chance of success on the, on the second go around. So what were the, the the things that as you look back on the OB experience, what were the things that were the hardest? The things that you, you talked about things that either were definitely mistakes or things that you wouldn't you would do differently next time. Are, are there a short list of things that you look back and 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 those were really really tough? Certainly a long list of things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean you know equally we did a lot of stuff right. Um, I think entrepreneurs uh founders can really beat themselves up at times like mm-hmm. you know even now second time around we're making a lot of mistakes uh, that's just the nature of the beast i think um you just got to be sort of recognizing that quickly and, and pivoting so um yeah i think uh we maybe tried to take some shortcuts you know did an incubator deal um you know ultimately I think it's, it's great to sort of put in some of the hard yards yourself, you know, build your own team out, build your own culture. I think it's critical in, in startup. Like, you know, in corporate, we talked about culture being important, but, um, you know, there's so much competitive advantage built into these large businesses, mm-hmm. so much resource there that you can kind of fudge it a bit, even if your culture is yeah. not, not great. Um, you know, when there's five of you, 10 of you, 15 of you, um, you know, that's, that's a lot harder. Um, you know, your culture is going to dictate all the decisions that you make and, you know, push you into the good, good decisions or bad decisions. And, and they're coming thick and fast. You know, when you're starting something from scratch, um, every, you know, you're presented with, um, you know, 20, 30 paths like every day or, you know, every hour at some point. And so you can get off track really quick if you're not sort of, you know, robust enough in your mindset. Um, I think it's really important to come from a place of, um, sort of abundance mindset rather than scarcity. Like if you're, if you're doing things cause you're scared, um, that's, that's going to lead to bad outcomes as well. Um, as opposed to sort of maintaining a clear vision and, and the self-confidence and what you're doing, um, which is hard 
<clears throat> very hard as a first time entrepreneur because you're riddled with doubt. You've got a bunch of people telling you that you're kind of crazy, another bunch of people telling you that there's no way you can do this without their help. Um, right. And, you know, you've got no prior record of, you know, doing it. So, um, but it's, it's, it's really important, I think, to kind of stick a clear course and believe in yourself um, while also having enough humility to kind of be able to look and, and see where you got off track or, you know, make where you've made mistakes. Um, I think it's really important to understand that you can't do it all yourself. Um, I took on way too much responsibility first time around my solution to when we hit, uh, issues was often just to work harder you know, what it is, what it worked for me in the past in my corporate career, just like, just grind it out a bit harder, you know, it's, and, um, again, you can't do that in startup. You'll end up in quite a hole. And, and I certainly did. Um, and so second time around, you know, I was able to say, look, um, you know, I recognize this is going to be hard, but also I'm going to set some clear boundaries for myself in terms of my mental health, exercise, my family, um, and not cross those things. And then be really kind of, um, purposeful about bringing in the advice and support required to, to do this and, and understand that, you know, this thing is kind of built by, by a collection of people and not just one. So, um, yeah, I think, I think all those things and, um, and probably the, you know, the biggest personal, um, learning for me. And, you know, it's interesting. A, a number of people have said to me that, you know, entrepreneurialism is, is a much personal journey is a professional one, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm naturally quite a conflict avoiding person. And, um, I'm also British and it can be quite daunting and, in, in, you know, in the U.S. startup culture at times because it's very, different way of operating and dealing with people. And, um, you know, I've had to kind of come to terms with that and get used to conflict and, you know, how to do that in a respectful way. And, you know, kind of it's left me in a really good place because I sort of retained some of the values that I hold true around, you know, treating people with respect and, you know, um, and listening and, um, you know, being empathetic, but then also, you know, being kind of tough when those decisions need to be made and, and being okay with a bit of disruption and a bit of conflict, which, um, you know, my corporate career reinforced were not good things. It's like, you know, often corporate environments, you're operating and, and aiming for harmony. Um, and, um, you know, not too many, uh, blow ups or, or, you know, loose pieces floating around. It's just kind of disastrous in a, in a multi-billion dollar business, but it's mm-hmm. essential in a startup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is not a lot of tolerance for breaking stuff in a big corporate environment. Breaking stuff is, is seen as the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Whereas breaking stuff. And in some cases, even, you know, you never want to break relationships, but ending things is absolutely critical to what it takes to build a startup. It's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think large corporations are completely correct in them, that mindset. I mean, you shouldn't have a load of disruption in a big company, you know, right. it's not the right approach. It's not the right way to think about it in a business of that scale. But, um, you know, when you, when you're small and nimble, I mean, we, yeah, sunk a bunch of cash into an initial brand design and then flipped it out two months before we launched because the research told us that 
um, you know, it, it was not going to work. And, you know, we, we took a load of learning from it. Um, and, um, that we made that pivot. Um, and as you say, you know, there's good people and good relationships that you have to sort of end respectfully and move on from, um, because you're moving through phases so quickly. And, um, you know, it's the, the kind of the, the standard and the requirement is so high to be successful in, in a business that's, you know, growing at 600 a percent, a thousand percent, whatever it is you're growing at. And in, you know, hyper competitive environment where you're kind of facing extinction in the face every day. Um, right. so, you know, that drives a certain mindset. I think, you know, entrepreneurs that kind of can kind of live, with, you know, recognize that and live with it and channel it, um, in, in a positive way. Um, you know, sort of ultimately come out, come out successful. I think. You mentioned shortcuts and you then said you talked about an incubator and I don't know whether you intended to link those two ideas, but I know there's a lot of like you throw a rock and you hit an incubator or an accelerator these days. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are everywhere and they do promise a certain kind of shortcut you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a buffer, it's insulation, it's, you know, a safety net. I don't know. There's lots, maybe there's multiple mm-hmm. analogies that we could use for sort of what their promise is. And I wonder, like in hindsight, what was your experience of that? Did it provide what you expected going in? Um, did it not? If not, why not? Yeah, some of the specifics of that I probably can't talk to, but, um, you know, what I would say broadly and what I've learned with this stuff, I think is, um, you know, ultimately you are responsible for your own business. So, you know, if you can't, if you can't do something, then you kind of like, uh, you know, need, need to figure out a way yourself to get, to get stuff done. Um, there aren't, there aren't really any shortcuts, um, you know, in startup and, and no shortcuts without a, a downside to them as well. Like, you know, the give and take and everything. So, um, you know, it's, it's tough when you're just starting out and you're thinking you're sat there and you might be sat there at home by yourself. Um, which I have been in that position in the past. And, you know, you other friends who got their, you know, working for large companies and their careers and whatever else. And you're thinking, hold on, I've stepped out of all of that to do this. Mm-hmm. And is this a thing? And you're looking for validation and you're looking to say, is my thing a thing? Um, and that's where sometimes some of this stuff can be quite tempting because a larger entity will come in or someone more experienced and they'll kind of give you a tick in the box. They can give you some validation. Um, I think that's where, you know, the, having the, the mental strength and the self belief to be like, look, I'm confident in the path that I'm going on. I'll get there. Even if it takes me a little longer, it'd probably be a more sustainable one. So if I could get there now, um, but I could probably get there in six months as well, or I could get there in 12 months. And I think you've got to make sure that all the deals that you're looking at doing are actually good deals. And if they're not, it's never a good idea to do them, no matter how much of a shortcut you think you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then go back, put in the hard work. If you really have, you know, a great team, if you've got a great product, you'll get there, you'll find a way and, um, you know, you'll learn from the process and it's, it's a bit of a marathon, this stuff. So, um, you know, you kind of like be, be in it for the long haul and be prepared to put in that work. 
That insight about looking for validation is really powerful because I actually hadn't considered it. And, you know, my company, Smoketown, is a bit of a startup still. You know, we're only a couple of years old at this point. And that piece around validation is it is built into the traditional corporate career. And mm-hmm. it is it must be manufactured in a startup. Because building a startup is so, if you let it, it's an incredibly isolating thing to do. Uh, yep. And I, with isolation comes lack of external validation. And, and I guess I'm coming at this from a place of some amount of external validation is probably hardwired into our, you know, makeup that we, that we actually need it. Uh, how and where you get it and what trade-offs you're willing to make to get it, that I think is, is where the risk is, but if it, but on, on some level, an entrepreneur has to find it somewhere, or it's just hard to have the mental fortitude and the emotional bandwidth to keep plugging at it. Well, I think it's that you know that belief in what you're doing and, and where you find the you know where you find the validation from. I mean, yes. you're at more risk if you've had a successful academic. Um, you know, period and done an MBA or whatever, and then gone into a corporate career, you're in real danger if you try and go and do startup from that point, because you've had a lot of external validation is yes. probably what you feel your self-esteem on. Um, you know, if I look at my corporate career, um, you know, yeah, I, I broadly excelled and was promoted and, you know, given pats on the back when I did a nice presentation or whatever. And, right. you know, it kind of feels nice. Um, no one's giving you a pound the back when you do a nice presentation <laughs> in startup and rightly so, you know, it's, um, it's kind of what I was looking for. I was looking for a bit of like real world and I got it, you know, smacked around the face with it. And, um, yeah, I had to, had to get that out of my system pretty quick and, you know, pretty quick for me, it was kind of a couple of years. Um, so, you know, it's, um, you know, I really applaud people that come from their corporate careers and, you know, and, and, um, you know, go through that process and also, you know, entrepreneurs that, um, you know, have, have some of this hardwired in that they already are set up for success better in that they're not looking for that external validation. They're like, look, I, I know what I'm doing here and I believe in my thing and, um, away you go. You know, it's, it's the noise around you, both the negative and positive start to impact you less. And that's certainly the place that I found myself in now. You know, you could be flavor of the month, um, in May and then, you know, kind of everyone thinks your business is a complete failure, uh, by August. Um, and, your underlying business can pretty much be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think it's kind of, it's just, yeah, important to understand what you're doing and have that belief in yourself and have a clear vision for where, you, where you're going. If you've enjoyed this conversation with David, be sure to stream part two of this discussion. That's where we dive into his latest venture, Olipop, which is growing like crazy and benefited from all the lessons learned in the first go around. Thank you for listening to Brand New Blueprint. If you want help or additional tools to apply what you learned in this episode, just text the word Blueprint to 66866. This podcast is a production of Smoketown, a boutique consultancy that helps emerging brands reach their growth potential. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to get the latest one. And a big thank you to the regulars for the beats. Beats.